This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. How dare she conduct herself as a modern woman of the 1920s? How dare she step out on her husband? How dare she do things that were previously just the business of men? I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom. And they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories. And now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Abbott Kaler is an author who wrote a book called The Ghosts of Eden Park. It's this fantastic mystery set during Prohibition, and it's about a bootlegger and his wife and their millions of dollars and their terrible marriage. It says Karen Abbott on this particular book, but how should I introduce you? So on the book, it's Karen Abbott, which is now a pen name for Abbott Kaler. So tell me briefly how this evolution happened, because you've been writing for a really long time. Okay, so it was back in 2013. I got an email from a reader who said, do you know that if you Google yourself, it says that you died in 2010? (laughs) And... And this is one reason I do not Google myself. I do not want to know. Sure enough, I Googled myself. There was my picture. There was my alma mater. And it says I died in 2010. I was turning 40. So I was in a a little bit of a midlife crisis. And I was like, you know what? I am just going to change my name. (laughs) You know, all of my old friends always called me Abbott back in college and high school. And so it was kind of a natural thing for me to just do that and then take my husband's last name, which is Kaler. It's so good to have options. It's nice just to remake (laughs) yourself like that. (laughs) Exactly. If I go into witness protection, it would serve me well. Let's start from the beginning. And there seem to be very few in the main players, very few good people. And all. (laughs) I mean, the the heroes are law enforcement and the attorneys. The big hero of the book is J. Edgar Hoover. He was the one really (laughs) solid, virtuous guy, which is really saying something. It is. (laughs) It's a sleazy story. I always look for a story first. Can this story be told in a novelistic way? Does it have a beginning, middle, and end? Are stakes rising? Are there twists and turns? Can I tell this as if it were a a piece of really good fiction? So that's number one. And then number two, you have to have the primary source materials to back up that kind of story. There's got to be some memoirs in there. There's got to be tons of newspaper coverage, contemporary interviews with the players. In this case, I had a credible trial transcript, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about later, that really gave me an, an amount of detail unprecedented for any previous book I've ever written. But then, of course, when you go to sell it to an agent or a publisher, I want to persuade my agent who wants to persuade my publisher. You say, you know, this, this is a story that embodies the 1920s, pretty much like no other story has. And the 1920s was such an important decade because it was really America's coming of age. It was America becoming a modern country coming out of World War One, really experiencing some changing mores, very quickly changing mores. Women were empowering themselves, getting the vote. And this story, I don't think could have happened. George Remus as a character could not have happened in any other decade. 
decade. And to me, it really just was the embodiment of that decade. And they were sold on that. Well, let's start from the beginning of this decade. So where are we in time when we drop in on George Remus? I actually wanted to start the book and set it up as a nonfiction whodunit. There's a gun that goes off in the very first scene, and you don't find out until much, much later who shot the gun and who received the bullet from that gun. And so then I backtrack and talk about George Remus, who also was really the embodiment of the American dream, the dark side of the American dream. Here is a, a, an incredibly brilliant person who was born in Germany and who arrived in the United States, never became a citizen, very poor growing up, suffered at the hands of an abusive father who was a drunk, very difficult childhood, had to drop out of school to in order to support his family, was able to get a job at an uncle's pharmacy, learned the pharmacy business, studied law at night, became a lawyer, and then just quite brilliantly, once prohibition was passed, decided that he was going to combine his talents and knowledge of both the pharmaceutical industry and the legal industry to find a loophole, which of course he did. And the loophole being that you could manufacture, sell, distribute alcohol for quote unquote medicinal purposes, which no one was really doing. It was just a great loophole for bootleggers to exploit. And George Remus, well before Capone or any of the other big bootleggers that people speak about today, did this the best. He did it first and he did it the best. Where are we? Is this Cincinnati or Chicago? And tell me the year. Well, he starts off in Chicago. Uh, he grew up in Chicago. He was a very popular defense attorney in Chicago. He was called the weeping, crying Remus because he would go around and leap and cry and tear out his hair and attack opposing counsel. So that's in Chicago. And this is in the, the late teens. As soon as Prohibition passed in 1920, he became aware of a new type of client. These men who he said they had no brains at all were making money hand over fist. They were paying these fines easily. And he decided he could do their illegal activity much better than they themselves were conducting it. And so about 1920, 1921, he moved to Cincinnati and began his business as a bootlegger. Why did he flip the switch? Why did he go from legal to illegal? Remus was always a borderline personality, I'm sure. I think the potential for criminal activity and serious criminal activity was always present in his psyche, and he just saw the opportunity to do it. I will say this, you know, I think one of the reasons that he's not as famous as, say, Al Capone was that Remus considered himself to be a gentleman bootlegger. He he was somebody who wanted to conduct his business with decorum as much as was possible for him. He aspired to be a respected member of high society. I don't think Capone ever had those aspirations. And if Remus was going to be violent, it certainly wasn't going to be out in the open with shooting a bunch of men up against a wall, as Capone did, or, or public executions. I think that Remus, while conducting major criminal activity, still had a strange code of ethics that, that he tried to adhere to to the best of his ability. Remus is the gentleman bootlegger. He is making tons of money, but he also has a personal life. So tell me about the personal life, maybe starting in Cincinnati. He had a daughter with his first wife. He was not a very good husband. I actually looked up their divorce. One of the, the problems she mentioned on their filing was that he, quote, had a habit of coming home early in the morning. That's polite. <laughs> that was uh, one of the things that you could cite in a 1920s divorce application. But anyway, he divorces her. He meets the actually the dust girl or the cleaning person in his office in Chicago in his, in his law office, which turns out to be the woman who becomes his second wife. Her name was Imogene Holmes. He sort of was impressed and taken with her right away. He not only was impressed with her beauty, he thought she was a beautiful woman, but also with her intellect, her business savvy. She was very street smart. He called her his prime minister oh. and sort of sought her advice on some of his business dealings. Imogene also had aspirations. She wanted to climb socially. She was very interested in Remus's money and she called him daddy. 
which almost seems like something from a pulp novel at the time. But yes, it is true. She called him daddy. Okay, so what do we know about her and her background because she's such a central character in the story? Yeah, she was also married. And in fact, they met, um, you know, she was cleaning his office and they began talking and they began commiserating about their mutually miserable marriages. You know, Remus was, uh, his wife was upset with him and her husband also was a philander, never never home, didn't pay child support for her daughter, basically spent any money they had on women who were not her. So Remus decided to represent her in her divorce. Oh, so what do you think the difference was between his marriage with his first wife and his marriage with Imogene? Is it the intelligence? and peer-to-peer feeling that he had with Imogene versus his other wife? What do you think the difference was? His first wife he met before he was financially successful. Once he met Imogene, there's a quote where he said she was a flashy dresser. And I think he really liked the way that she knew how to mingle. She was impressive. I think she probably had a charisma. In the book, I, I mentioned a couple parties they throw where the guests make comments about the way she looks, her sort of her cat-like features and her cat-like expression. She seemed sort of <laughs> slinky and mysterious and sort of was seemed like the kind of person who expected people to be impressed with her. And I think that sort of attitude goes a long way. You know, she also was from a very humble beginning, but she she was determined to make her mark on the world. And once she became Mrs. George Remus, she really saw that as her chance. You know, the press in the 1920s, I have a book set in the 1920s also, and the press in the 1920s was just an expert on sexualizing women. I mean, it is... Was unbelievable. So I'm really going to be interested in how they frame Imogene later on. Did you get a sense for what kind of, I guess, stepmother she would have been to Remus's daughter from his first marriage? Oh, she was horrible to Remus's daughter from his first marriage. Imogene did not like anyone else who required any of Remus's money. She wanted all okay. of Remus's money for herself. Anytime he bought a gift for his first daughter, she protested about this. She wanted all the money to go to her daughter, her daughter Ruth, whom Remus actually officially adopted. And she even resented Remus's mother because he still supported his mom and, and was really just sort of very interested in material things. There's several little anecdotes in the book about how she goes shopping and doesn't even look at the price tag. Things are okay. He seems to be relatively happy in this relationship, right? And he has his daughter there and his adopted adopted daughter. And I'm assuming as what would happen during Prohibition, if you're part of organized crime, his business is growing and he's making more and more money. What's the next benchmark of things that happened to George Remus in his life? Well, I'd love to talk about the way that he enjoyed his money. First, I should talk about he became a folk hero in Cincinnati. You can imagine that a large number of jobs were lost with prohibition. Brewers, of course, bartenders, people at saloons, people at restaurants, bottle makers, truck drivers, anyone who was even tangentially involved in the, the process of bottling and, and selling or distributing alcohol was out of a job. And Remus shows up and, and suddenly, you know, provides the city with about 3,500 jobs and also providing them with liquor to spend that money on. So it was a win-win for him. He was a very, very popular character in Cincinnati. He had this lavish mansion in a very pricey neighborhood in Price Hill, it's called in Cincinnati, the most prestigious neighborhood. He had a pool. He would let the neighborhood kids come and swim in his pool. He wanted it. He had a, like a field where they could come and play baseball. He threw this party and he not only invited Cincinnati luminaries, very important families like the Tafts, William Howard Taft and the whole Taft family was prominent in Cincinnati, but just prominent people around the country 
And if I could just spend a moment talking about the party favors and sort of the extent he went to to really try to impress these people. You know, he gave a brand new 1922 car to every woman at the party. (laughs) You know, you know, decades before Oprah Winfrey, you know, you get a car. Wow. (laughs) A diamond stick pin to every man, an engraved watch for every man. Every single person had a thousand dollar bill tucked beneath their plate, which is sort of the equivalent of you and I looking under our chairs right now and finding $14,000. Wow. He lit guest cigars with a hundred dollar bill. Oh gosh, this is very William Tweed, boss Tweed. (laughs) Oh yes. And of course, Jay Gatsby, you know, and and Remus is said to be one of the inspirations for Jay Gatsby. There's all these apocryphal stories that F. Scott Fitzgerald and George Remus met when Fitzgerald was stationed in Louisville, but there's no proof, hard proof that they ever met. But I think that it's very true that the Gatsby similarities with Remus are pretty conspicuous. How do these guys, how are they so arrogant that they can expect that the government is obviously going to see all of this happening and not start focusing in on them. Did he just not care or did he think he was above it? Oh, he just bribed them all, of course, you know. Uh, of course. He had a man in the Harding administration who was his liaison, who was going to provide him with legitimate government certificates to get the whiskey out of the warehouses, and who also promised legal protection. You know, if George, George Remus would not get arrested, if George Remus were arrested, George Remus would not go to jail. He went to jail, he, he would be acquitted at a trial. If he were convicted at his trial, he wouldn't spend any time in jail. If he went in jail, he would get out. Wow. <laughs> you know, this whole system. And of course, it doesn't quite end up that way for George Remus, but he was very confident that his system of bribing officials was going to go a long way because, of course, many of the officials also were openly disdainful of prohibition. Yeah. So, Lavish parties, marriage, children, George Remus has it all. When does he start to see signs of weaknesses? So what year is this and what's the situation? The mistake he made was trusting that his underlings were as meticulous as he was. Uh Remus did not make mistakes. Actually, he made a fatal mistake. He made a mistake in trusting one of his underlings to say that, that Death Valley was clear, that there was no alcohol in the premises. So Death Valley was one of Remus's fortified distilleries in Cincinnati. They would get rid of the alcohol during certain times, and they knew when alcohol was there, they knew when alcohol was not there. And if they knew that there might be a raid coming or if police were going to come or detectives were going to come and check the premises, they made sure it was a time when they knew no alcohol was going to be there. One of his underlings reported it was all clear. Remus was fine, even though he had had a tip that there was uh, prohibition agents in town. So, of course, the prohibition agents come to Death Valley. They do a sweep. And what do they find but a bunch of alcohol? And George Remus is is implicated. And that's where his troubles really start happening. And I would like to just say that the person who was in charge of this early raid, who actually began the domino falling of bad things against George Remus, was a man named Franklin Dodge, uh, who goes on to become an even bigger nemesis for Remus as time goes on. So what happens with Remus? Is he arrested? Is this whole Remus gets out of anything that happens to him plan kick in? Well, it does. He is assured by his government sources and his government friends that it was not going to be a big deal, that he was going to be able to avoid jail. He goes to trial, and to Remus's great surprise, he is convicted at trial, and he's yeah. um, sentenced to jail in, in Atlanta Federal Penitentiary for several prohibition violations. And Remus is just out of his mind. I've been paying you upwards of a million dollars in bribes, not adjusted for inflation. It's a lot of money back in 1921, and look where it got him. You know, he's he's in trouble. So Remus is counting on a man named Jess Smith. Jess Smith was his liaison in the federal government. He is the one who had been providing Remus with whiskey certificates to get alcohol 
out of the warehouses. He has been the one that's been promising Remus legal protections. But, you know, just as Remus's trial went through, just as Remus was convicted and looking to Jeff Smith for help to sort of mitigate the aftermath of the trial and make sure he did not go to prison, Jeff Smith dies by suicide. Do we know what happened? Was it connected to a different case? You know, there's a lot of speculation. Of course. Yes. As in many things in this book and in George Remus's life, there's speculation. There's various theories. One of them is that he actually was murdered and it was set up to look like a a suicide. So for lack of a better phrase, it sounds like George Remus is pretty screwed right now. Yes. Because his one good (laughs) source is now gone. So he's in jail and he's upset. And mad, I'm assuming. Or he's been convicted, so he's in prison. Uh, Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, which was actually a very fascinating place at this time in its own right. It was the home to various very prominent and wealthy bootleggers. They actually had a section of the jail devoted just to these bootleggers. It was called Millionaire's Row. (laughs) (laughs) They each had their own suites. You know, they could have their own cooks, their own cleaning person. They had organized dinners with fresh flowers and their own cooks and fresh table linens and, and beautiful settings. And Remus was sort of the king of of Millionaire's Row. But meanwhile, Remus was miserable because Remus is a control freak. And of course, if you're in prison, you really cannot control what's going on in the outside, least of all his wife, Imogene, who by this time was busy looking for her next mark. Well, so what's the problem with Imogene? Does she have access to all of the millions that he's collected over the years? Because this is his wife. Actually, yes. Right before he went to prison, he made, I guess, in later retrospect, a very grave error of putting all of his various accounts and the home and everything under her name. Oh, boy. Yeah, because he was worried that the government was going to seize all of his assets. And if he switched them to Imogene, it would be a, a harder battle, I suppose, to do that. Meanwhile, Imogene had really started to tire of her life with George Remus and had become enamored with a new man. A man who happened to have had a very prominent hand in Remus's downfall, the very prohibition agent who had sent him to jail. And this is Franklin Dodge. This is Franklin Dodge, yes. So we have an assistant attorney general for the United States who is now alerted to George Remus's illegal activities. You know, here's Mabel Walker Willenbrandt. She was 32 years old, was five years out of law school, had never prosecuted a single case in her career. She was actually working as a public defender in California. She only represented female clients. She was a true pioneer and an advocate for women's rights and was tapped by Warren Harding to be the assistant attorney general of the United States. And you have to wonder why this group of men decided that she was going to be their pick. You know, I'm sure they had a conference and that the thinking was along the lines of, let's put the little lady in charge. She's inexperienced. She's young. She's not going to know what she's doing. Let's put her in this role. And she's going to just be overwhelmed. And of course, Mabel Walker-Willenbrand gets into this role and just begins kicking ass. She surprises them all. She takes her role very seriously. One of the first things that she does is decide to go after George Remus um, and his bootlegging empire. And one of the other remarkable things about her, she was almost entirely deaf. And she spent every morning trying to conceal her earring aids with her, her hairstyle. And she wrote these really beautiful, heartbreaking letters to her parents talking about, they think I'm impressive now. They think I'm good now. If only I could hear. Oh, wow. What kind of work could I be doing then? So she's really the one who kind of kicked all this stuff off and connected Franklin Dodge with Imogene and George Remus. Is that right? She becomes aware of Franklin Dodge. He was somebody who had a government job. I'm sure his father, who was a very prominent politician in Michigan, got him a job in the federal government. But she saw something in him. She thought he was smart. She thought he was daring. He was willing to go undercover to try to get some information on bootleggers. He was involved in a big case in Savannah. She was impressed with that work. She actually called him her ace of detectives and decided that 
he should be the one to organize the investigation into George Remus's empire. So it is fair to say that Abel Walker Willenbrandt really started this entire mess. So now the man who went after him is now courting his wife. Talk about unethical. Yes. The man who went after Remus and who gathered the evidence that was used against him at trial that eventually sent him to prison is now courting George Remus's wife. So Remus is starting to hear about their, you know, being seen in public together and questionable embraces, uh, various settings where it would not be appropriate for them to be together. I should say he is going nuts. He's going insane. Okay. So he's on Millionaire's Row. Is there a chance he can get out on some kind of technicality? Does he have a good defense team working on the case? Well, this is one of my favorite twists in the whole book was that, you know, Imogene came to visit George Remus in prison. And this is how Imogene meets Franklin Dodge. Imogene comes to visit George Remus in Atlanta. And he says, look, there is a prohibition agent here who is investigating corruption at this prison. His name is Franklin Dodge. I know his background, but I've heard that he is amenable to bribes. He's amenable to quid pro quo. With the right offer, he might actually agree to help me out of the situation. He says, I want you to go cultivate Franklin Dodge. So Imogene, of course, goes to cultivate Franklin Dodge, but not quite in the way that George Remus had hoped. Mm-hmm, in a naughty way. And I'm sure George Remus went through the roof when he heard this. Yes, George Remus started sending her really unhinged letters. In fact, George Remus had such a kind of a brilliant and funny and eccentric and bizarre way with words. And and some of the letters he sent to Imogene from prison really are a window into his deteriorating mental condition at this time and and are some of my favorite passages in the book. Do you think that she is worried? I mean, does she not just give a fig about any of this at this point? Her husband's in jail. She has all his money. And she's got this attractive prohibition agent on her side. Right now, life seems pretty good for Imogene. Yeah, I think Imogene is actually enjoying herself at this point. At some point, things must have turned very dark between her and Remus. There was an estrangement, which he never speaks about, of course. He he acts like he's still very much in love with her. But she figures, hey, I have this prohibition agent. He's from a wealthy family. He's from a prominent family. These are things that Remus never offered her. While he had money, he never had the prestige or any kind of pedigree that she would have been proud of in public. And Dodge had all of these things. And now she also was in charge of Remus's money. She really must have been feeling the power then and and figured, you know, she might as well just do what she wants. And what she wanted at that moment was to go off with Franklin Dodge and ruin her husband in the process. George Remus is still in jail, and Imogene and Franklin Dodge are running all over town, not hiding anything. Were there tabloid magazines at the time? Oh, absolutely. There were sightings about Franklin Dodge and Imogene being seen together. And in fact, one of Remus's bootlegger friends in Atlanta pulled him aside at one of their fancy dinners and says, look, you're not going to like this, but I'm hearing things. I'm hearing things about Franklin Dodge and Imogene that that I really felt compelled to tell you. And Remus in first is in denial and reacts very strongly and, and actually hits the guy, hits his fellow bootlegger, um, then apologizes and starts realizing this terrible thing might actually be happening to him. And this is when... Remus is in prison still, is that right, or jail? Yes, he's still in jail. So he's kind of powerless, powerless at this point to do anything about it. Every time he asks Imogene, you know, what's going on? Is anything untoward going on between you and Dodge? She says, don't worry, Daddy, Mr. Dodge is our friend. (sighs) 
Gross. <laughs> <laughs> That's a direct quote. Yeah. Uh, I want to know how Franklin Dodge is getting away with any of this. He's having an affair with the wife of a convicted bootlegger, gangster. How is the federal government okay with this? Are they not reprimanding him? J. Edgar Hoover, who had been appointed the director of the of the Bureau of Investigation at this time, this was a precursor to the FBI. They didn't add the federal until later. But he's in charge of the Bureau of Investigation. And J. Edgar Hoover, of course, has many horrible chapters in his career. But at this time, in this place, he was very serious about having an honest force of prohibition agents. He did not want anybody taking bribes. He didn't want anybody doing any anything illegal, cavorting with bootleggers. And he he actually sends one of his own men to go follow Franklin Dodge and Imogene Remus. So it's sort of a spy versus spy situation where one of Hoover's guys starts trailing a prohibition agent, Franklin Dodge, around the country. There's actually a scene where Hoover's guy catches Franklin Dodge with his pants down, literally with his Ugh. pants down, which is about the first, I think, the only time in a nonfiction book where you actually get to write a scene where somebody's caught with their pants down. Um, and, it, and it was it was a lot of fun. Right. Okay. Franklin Dodge is really tempting fate here because he's courting this wife of a organized crime gangster leader who's in jail. He's risking his job. He's got all these eyes on him from the federal government. Is anybody concerned that George Remus could order a hit on either Imogene or Franklin Dodge? Does that happen in the 1920s? Oh, I think Franklin Dodge was equally as arrogant as Remus. They sort of had met their match in each other. I think they probably had similar personality disorders. And in fact, they would just trade quips, you know, through intermediaries. Like Remus became friendly with a newspaper reporter, a Louisville newspaper reporter, who then went to interview Franklin Dodge. And there's another really crazy scene where Dodge shows the newspaper reporter his muscles, like actually rolls up his sleeve and shows him his muscles and says, you know, give my regards to Remus while he's showing off his his muscles. And And they basically just threw these taunts back and forth at each other. And of course, Dodge has the upper hand. He also has the protection of the law at this point because he is a man of the law. And Remus is stuck in jail. So I I suppose, you know, what did he think Remus was going to do? Well, Remus is going to get out at some point. So Remus does get out of jail. And there's sort of a, a great odyssey of Remus going back and forth between trying to win Imogene back over and and trying to find where his money is and also discovers that Imogene and Franklin Dodge have hired a hitman to kill him. <gasps> oh, no. Um, yeah. How does he find... Wait, wait, wait. How does he find that out? He hears about it, and he actually... He starts trailing the hitman. I mean... <laughs> It gets to the point where it's such a farce that this hitman, this hired killer, becomes so terrified of both George and Imogene Remus that he thinks he himself is the one who's going to be killed. And he's like, "I get me away from these two. I don't want anything to do with this situation. So even the hitman is like, these two are crazy, and I am just going to extricate myself before I get murdered. We just interviewed the author who wrote the book about the Hatfields and the McCoys. Oh, I love that book. I love that book. Yes, Dean King. So he told me about a murder trial involving both families, and the judge was a Hatfield, and the jury was half McCoy, half Hatfield. (laughs) And I said, was there no one else around to be on this jury? And he said, would you want to be on a jury with Hatfields and McCoys? That's true. So you're stuck in the middle between two crazy people in this story. Poor hitman. Yeah. So how does he actually get out of Millionaire's Row? Does he make some kind of a deal or something? Remus serves his time. So this was not a heavy, big sentence or anything? No, no. It was a couple years. A couple years in Atlanta. 
Yeah. And and then when he gets out, of course, he really discovers the extent to which Imogene had basically pillaged his home, the mansion, the beautiful mansion they renovated together, millions of dollars worth of furnishings and valuables, including his signature of George Washington, which was one of his prized possessions, $50,000 at the time. Yeah. So Imogene took it all. She took it all. She just took it and drained everything. One of my favorite scenes is when he actually gets back to the mansion. It's four in the morning and takes a tour through it. And it's just absolutely devastated. Is she scared? I would think so, knowing that he has gotten out. I mean, is she freaked out? I think she is. On top of this, I should say, on top of the the romance with the federal agent who put him in jail, on top of ransacking his home, on top of stealing his money, she also tries to get him deported. Back to Germany. Deported back to Germany. She contacts the immigration authorities saying this man has never had the proper papers processed and he should be deported. I think she sort of is under the impression that the Dodge is going to protect her. But she increasingly, you know, becomes aware of the, the depth of Remus's anger and rage and starts to realize he is capable of what she's capable of. I think Imogene and and George were very well matched in terms of their capacity for wrongdoing and revenge and and pure sociopathy, really. I think they're equal in that regard. They really kind of deserved each other. Oh, until they didn't. And (laughs) so... What, do you have any idea, this is a little bit of a side, but what, what happens with the relationships uh, with the children? I mean, does he get to see the children? Is I, I don't know how it works in the 1920s as far as visitation or custody. Once he moved to Cincinnati, he did not go back to Chicago too often, but later on he would reconnect with his first daughter and she'd become a very important person in his life. But during his time with Imogene, I think Imogene really discouraged that. And and at that time he was interested in pleasing Imogene and, and sort of went along with it to his own detriment, of course. I mean, it sounds like she really was trying to isolate him, for sure, from his family. She was, but, you know, I hate to put the blame for that on her. That's he, he totally could have, you know, gone to see his daughter anytime he pleased. But he was really focused on Ruth at the time, who was living with them and who was young and who, you know, was Imogene's daughter. Is George Remus able to go back to being the king of bootlegging in Cincinnati once he gets out of jail? Do things sort of go back to normal for him? No, he contemplates the idea, but at that time, you know, a few years had passed and the game had completely changed. Capone and and all of those players in Chicago were really sort of running things. You know, New York had many prominent bootleggers as well. He did not like the violent aspect, I think, of those two groups of, of bootleggers and how things were being conducted and really didn't get back into it. And I think was very preoccupied with the, the fact that his marriage was <laughs> disintegrating and he had basically yeah. lost all of his money, which still remains a mystery to me. You know, I would love to know he had millions and millions of dollars. You know, at one point, this man had so much money that he considered opening his own bank just for his own money. <laughs> Where did it all go, though? She couldn't have spent all of it. A lot of it was in possessions, okay? Property, jewelry, expensive furnishings, artifacts, whiskey certificates, warehouses, alcohol. So it wasn't all liquid cash or anything like that. But still, where did it go? So he is out. He is broke. He is going back and forth between Imogene, trying to get her back. And I'm assuming she's not interested in him to potentially hiring hitmen on her. So where does this relationship go as the years go on? There are actually some quite poignant scenes. He's trying to persuade her not to get a divorce. He wants a reconciliation. And the newspaper reporter friend I mentioned earlier and Remus's right-hand man, uh, George Connors, get together and try to facilitate a sort of a a chat where they could discuss things. Remus brings her flowers. He's really sort of seems sincere and earnest about this. And this happens a couple times. And, And every time the efforts just sort of fall apart and Remus becomes increasingly desperate. 
Why is he so fixated on her? Is it the challenge? Is it that he's an abuser? What is it? I do think he had, in his strange, demented way, he did have a genuine love for her. He sought her advice. He sought her input. He would give her an allowance, of course, and she would put that money back in the business. He would advise her on how to do it. I think she was his equal in a way that his first wife was not, or at least in Remus's mind. And I I think Remus was also somebody who didn't want to lose to Dodge. At this point, it was a battle with another man, and he was not going to lose. If Imogene was a piece of his property, as I'm sure he viewed her in that way in some regard, he did not want to lose yet one more thing to Franklin Dodge. The climatic incident is the day that they were supposed to get divorced. This is in October of 1927, beautiful fall morning. The divorce proceeding is scheduled for early in the morning. I should say during this time that Imogene carried a gun. She had a pearl-handed revolver. She was always armed. She was increasingly armed when she knew Remus was getting out of prison. She made sure she always had a gun with her. She thought Remus was going to kill her, and Remus thought that she was going to kill him. There was actually a very equal mutual fear of, of murder at the hands of the other. So now we've arrived at the day of the divorce proceedings in Cincinnati. Remus goes to the Sinton Hotel where Imogene is staying with daughter Ruth, and he sees them coming out of the hotel in the morning, ready to get into a car, and he he wants the car to stop so he can talk to Imogene. And then there's a car chase, there's actually a car chase, and then the gun goes off. We're back to the prologue where the gun goes off. Does he just fling open the door and fire? No, there's a a long chase. It's actually quite horrifying. At some point, there's a a jam in the traffic, and she gets out of the cab that she's riding in. Remus gets out of the car he's riding in. He runs after her. He runs after her through Eden Park, which is this beautiful, bucolic stretch of green in, in the middle of Cincinnati that's really peaceful and lovely. And at this point, crowded with rush hour traffic. You can imagine it's car to car. Runs toward a gazebo, again, this very scenic area in the park, and he shoots her. (sighs) It's horrifying. It, It was one of the most horrifying things I've ever written because He shoots her right in front of Ruth, the daughter. And I went through this incredible trial transcript and just hearing the the accounts, you know, Imogene would try to bang on a car door and and let me in, let me in. I've been shot, I've been shot. And people would just drive by or keep their doors closed and not look at her. It was really, really difficult to write. It just seems like, I know it's not out of nowhere, but it just doesn't seem like it fits him. I mean, I know he's erratic. I know that he's frustrated and upset, Was it just too much to think that she was divorcing him and that this would be it? He had no more control over her? He would say that he was insane, of course, you know, that was going to be his argument. And that the minute that he shot her, he had been whipped in such a frenzy that that he didn't know what he was doing. But the minute he shot her, he was, his sanity was restored. And I do think Remus knew exactly what he was doing. So does he give up? Is he immediately arrested? He is arrested. He admits what he did. He said that, you know, he actually conducted a a great good for society that morning. And I almost think that some of the things he said were so outrageous that I almost think it was an early part of his defense. Let me say the most outrageous, overt things I can think of, because in retrospect, they're going to look like I'm crazy. And if you were somebody who just killed your spouse and were maybe hoping not to be convicted of that, you would think you might not be so overtly awful and and derogatory and, and really crazy sounding unless you were planning to claim you were crazy. What is the challenge for you humanizing a victim like Imogene who is not the most likable person in this story? This is difficult. Yeah, I can't tell you how many people, you know, read the book and said, you know what, I'm so glad he did it. Really? I can't tell. Oh, my God, everybody, everybody. Boy, I don't feel like that. I don't think anybody deserves to die like that. And she was a mother. 
I, I agree. The only person I truly felt sorry for in the entire book was her daughter, Ruth, because oh, Ruth yeah. wit- witnessed this horrible thing and actually rode with her mother in the cab to the hospital, heard her mother's dying words, you know, be good. I want you to be good. I, I mean, just horrible, really visceral scenes. But I can't tell you how many people were like, I'm rooting for Remus. I was rooting <gasps> for him. She was oh, a terrible gosh. woman. And which is an interesting reaction because when you think about it, it had to be part of the mentality of the jurors at the trial. Yeah. It wasn't George Remus on trial. It was prohibition on trial. They loved the idea that Remus was flouting prohibition. And it was also Imogene on trial because how dare she do these things and think that she might get away with it. So I, I believe Imogene herself was on trial as well. Is this first degree murder or what What are they charging him with? They are charging with first degree murder. Yes. This is serious, the most serious charge he's ever faced, and he has a defense attorney. What is the game plan? We've kind of hinted at it already, but it's a isn't this a game plan that he sort of developed himself back in Chicago when he was a defense attorney? Well, he decides that he's going to plead temporary insanity. He almost got a client off in Chicago using the same defense. And so he was very confident in his ability to present this case. He was confident in his ability to make this argument the craziest aspect of all of this is that he represents himself. <laughs> of course He's a he does. Man pleading insanity and is able to finagle it so that he could represent himself. Of course, he has co-counsel, but Remus was really the star of the show and he was the one who was really in charge of his own defense. So does it sound like George Remus is, is he positioned in some way as the hero throughout this whole thing in this trial? I mean, we were talking, I know he's on trial for murder, but it sounds like Imogene's character is put on trial, prohibition is put on trial. How is this whole thing framed around him? Well, you know, Charlie Taft is trying to make the argument that Remus was not insane. It's a ruse. He was never insane. He wasn't insane the day he shot her. He wasn't insane all the times he's in, in prison and he claims he has these brainstorms. You know, Remus kept talking about having brainstorms, which he tried to translate into meaning that he was in temporary flights of insanity where he wasn't aware of his surroundings and he was ranting and raving and then he would snap out of it a few minutes later and sort of be bewildered as to where he'd been. How much of this is insanity and how much of this is an actual very well-honed performance? It sounds like he was actually really captivating and the jury paid attention, I guess. He had actually made the jurors cry several times. He actually threw a tantrum that was quite worrying to many of the jurors. You know, they worried about his health, (laughs) as only Remus can do. I think Remus was probably the champion tantrum thrower in American history. They came back very quickly with the verdict. What was it? Not guilty by reason of insanity. And they actually wanted to just declare him not guilty of, you know, straight not guilty. Um, But that wasn't an option. That wasn't an option. Yeah. So what ends up happening with George Remus? He's not going to prison. So he ends up, of course, in a hospital. George Remus, as he always does, finds a way eventually pretty soon to be free of that situation as well. How did that happen? It's just uh, legal wranglings. He's released. And I have to say, though, George Remus is still alive, of course, but it's not a triumphant ending for him. He gets out and his empire is gone. The spotlight is gone. He doesn't court attention anymore. All of the things he had craved and worked toward in the 1920s were gone at this time. He spent quite a bit of time trying to find his money, filing lawsuits and scrounging around. And if, you know, if he, he would sue people, who he thought owed him money, even for like ridiculous sums, uh, low sums that really weren't going to make a, a difference to him and really lived the rest of his life in a sort of sad obscurity, faded from view. And if people approached him on the street, he kind of ran away. Did he ever get remarried? He did end up marrying his accountant. Okay, he keeps it close. First, he married his cleaning woman, and now he's married his accountant. He does. Yeah, he, he really does keep it close. And she was sort of a discreet woman. They, they lived quietly together. 
he dies and he's buried in, in Kentucky, northern Kentucky. Ultimately, what do you think this story's about? It's the culture of celebrity, it's greed, it's opulence, the dangers of excess. I really just want people to come away and say, I, I can't believe that was a true story. That's what I really want when I write nonfiction. I want people to say, I can't believe this actually happened. This is stranger than any novel I've ever read. I want you to close the book and think, God, that was a really crazy, interesting story. That's really all I care about. On the next episode of Wicked Words... In 1856, he drew all these sort of con men figures to the island, and, and, and some former true believers became disaffected, as happens in these groups, and really angry with him, furious with him, and they started conspiring to kill him. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.